Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I hope everybody is well. I hope you're safe and I hope you're healthy. Um, I'm excited to be back with more podcasts. Uh, I'll be going through about the end of June with some more episodes and then taking uh, a couple months off for the summer, even though there probably won't be a lot of travel going on with the Schwabish household. Uh, But I'll be taking a little bit of a rest uh, as we get into the summer months. So as you may know, over the last few weeks, uh, well now months, I would say, uh, I've been hosting uh, these Data at Urban digital discussions. They are one hour chats uh, with me and a guest or two. Uh, We talk for 10, 15 minutes and then a little bit of Q&A with uh, folks who show up. And they've been a great experience for me to talk with people in lots of different fields of data, visualization, uh, graphic design, uh, people who are making tools, people who are working in data science. And um, it's been a really great experience and I've really enjoyed seeing lots of people come out and, and chat with me. And of course, the guests. So on this week's episode of the podcast, I'm going to repost one of those discussions. Um, And in this uh, digital discussion, I chatted with two of my Urban Institute colleagues, Graham McDonald and Claire Bowen. Uh, Graham is the chief scientist at Urban and Claire is the lead data scientist for privacy and data security at the Urban Institute. Uh, We talk about their work. We talk about how they're helping researchers at at Urban understand uh, the issues around data security and privacy. And we also talk about other issues related to data security, related to data privacy, related to working with administrative data. So it's a really interesting conversation. There's a lot of interesting uh, things happening in this space. Um, And it was great uh, to be able to sit down with Graham and Claire and talk about these various issues. Um, Just a couple other notes before we get into that discussion. Uh, I've been trying to post more blogs on my website, sort of some shorter things, uh, not as long as I usually write, just trying to get a little bit uh, more writing done, get a few more things out onto the blog. Uh, So lately I've been uh, writing about things like uh, some success I had uh, helping the Social Security Administration improve the data visualizations um, in 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 their reports. Uh, I've written about uh, a visualization I created on the benefits of wearing face masks in the era of COVID-19. And of course, I have a new book coming out later this year, Better Data Visualizations, and I hope you'll check that out uh, on the show notes page and over on Amazon. You can go and pre-order it right now. And that's very excited to, uh, to see it coming out. So I'm excited for that. So uh, so this week's episode of the podcast is my discussion with Graham and Claire, and you'll hear, of course, some other people chiming in uh, with their questions after our discussion. So I hope you'll enjoy this week's episode of the podcast with Graham McDonald and Claire Bowen. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm John Schwabish. Thanks so much for coming this afternoon to another Data at Urban digital discussion, digital chat. Hopefully you've been able to tune into some of these in the past. The plan is pretty simple. Um, uh, We have two great guests. Guests, I don't know what to call folks who are showing up for these people. Two great folks, two colleagues of mine at the Urban Institute. We're gonna chat for like 10 or 15 minutes um, about uh, the work they're doing. And then we'll just open it up for questions and have a discussion. It's very casual, very low key. Uh, So if you have questions, just pop them into the chat window and I'll be able to build out a queue, and then you'll be able to unmute yourself and have a discussion. Um, right now, there's only about 35 of us, so we can just unmute ourselves and, and have at it. So I thought we would start by just having our two uh, guests uh, introduce themselves. So um, we have Graham McDonald from the Urban Institute and Claire Bowen, also from the Urban Institute. And, um, and then we'll just, yeah, we'll just take it from there. So again, super laid back. So um, Claire, do you wanna, do you wanna start? <laughs> Hi, I'm Claire Bowen and I'm the lead data scientist at the Urban Institute and I specialize in data privacy and data security. 
Am I supposed to say any words? No, no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and just as a point of reference, you're in Santa Fe. Yes. Yeah, right. So right now I'm in right now. Uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, so right. I was going to be remote working anyway. But <laughs> right. So this worked out. <laughs> this totally worked out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then Graham, who is in D.C. I'm in D.C. Metro yep. map back here. Right. A little data, there's no silver line on this one. So, um, but yeah, I'm in DC, chief data scientist here at the Urban Institute. Um, started as a housing researcher, did a lot of uh, data viz right as you were coming on to Urban, and then I left, John, and then came back. And I've uh, sort of built up the data science team. We're now seven folks working across all the researchers at Urban to integrate anything you could think of called data science into our research at Urban. Yeah. Um, maybe we should start there, Graham. You can talk maybe a little bit about the team you built out and, I don't know, just the, the evolution maybe of what data science means at Urban and maybe for, for researchers at, at places like us in general. Um, and then, Claire, I know you've put a couple things in the chat box for people to take a look at on data security and privacy. So maybe we could just sort of segue into the data privacy issue as well. But, but maybe um, I think it'd be interesting for people, Graham, to hear how you've been working to change how urban uses data every day. Yeah, and let me know, you know, my, my internet's going in and out these days, so just let me know right. if I'm slow and just, I don't know, yell or put your hands up or something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so yeah, so uh, as a little under four years ago now, I came back to urban from Berkeley after having, you know, gotten my policy degree, but really just taken a bunch of uh, programming courses at the School of Computer Science and Information there. And I really had this vision for Urban where we could use some of these new tools, uh, you know, mostly a lot of cloud technology, but also, you know, any of the data science methods like machine learning, natural language processing, you know, I would put web scraping in there uh, that we could use to sort of in our research to collect new data, to do new types of analyses, to, you know, have better real-time data collection because, you know, often in our policy world, we have data sets that are, you know, we're at the neighborhood level, we're using like five-year averages from the American Community Survey from 2014 to 2018 to talk about today, right? So there's all these like ways in which we want to better use data here at Urban. And like, and you know, John, as you know, before when I was at Urban, we had been just putting out PDFs, right? And I'm sure when you were at the CBO, they were doing the same thing, right? And they were putting out these PDFs and you were like, you know, you see the graph of who reads a PDF, right? And no one here is gonna be surprised no when it's like, it's like not even your mom sometimes, which is like really, like at least you get like 10 to get your mom, but like some of them are zero, right? And so building out the data science patties uh, at Urban is sort of like, you know, when I think about building data viz into policy organizations was sort of this like obvious next step in how to communicate your work and took a lot, a lot of effort, but was like really valuable. I sort of see the same thing in data science at policy organizations today. I mean, don't get me wrong, still need more data viz <laughs> and, policy organization, and better data viz. But I also <laughs> right. think yeah. we need more and better data science to, you know, for example, we're doing projects where we use natural language processing on news articles to collect um, instances of major zoning reform so we can understand the impact of zoning reform on housing affordability, right? Or like think about, like the COVID crisis right now is like, there's a lot of creative people including us thinking about how do we understand which neighborhoods or which areas are gonna be most impacted by this crisis economically or socially or whatever that may be in real time because we don't wanna wait three years to get that data right now. We wanna have some proactive response, right? And so I feel like data science is really important in this policy realm, not just for you know real time data, but also for 
using these new methods creatively to come at new data sources. And that's where we use sort of like big data methodology, new cloud architectures, um, APIs, things like that. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I don't want to say the pushback. I guess the right word is challenge, really. Because so, it's not necessarily pushback, it, because it is changing the way people who have worked with data or build models for a long time is changing the way they have to work, right? Like you reference your data set on your C drive on your computer and then going to something in the cloud is a is kind of a different way to think and a different way to act. So I don't want to say problems. I think it is challenges, right? Um, and maybe not even convincing people that it's a better way, but just helping them get to that better state. Yeah, no, that's a super good question. I'm going to give you a boring answer, which is like, there's win-win mentality, right? I'm going to go back to like Stephen Covey's book, like seven, right? Right. Like you go and say, Hey, you know, where's the win-win situation here? I'm not going to people by fiat and saying like, Hey, you have to switch from your personal computer running SAS into running R in the cloud now. Right. But there have been projects, you know, we were working on this, you know, snag a job, this company that's the largest online app for connecting people with, uh, with like, you know, sort of hourly jobs. And I never heard of it before, but they have like tens of millions of people across the US. So this is how, you know, I'm used to applying for jobs with a paper application when I was working in my minimum wage grocery store, right? But they're like, they have this app now. And, you know, they're trying to, these researchers are sitting like on, with Stata on their personal computer trying to merge a 72 million record data set with a 24 million record data set and just like crashing their computer constantly and taking days and days. And then we come in and we're like, hey, let me show you how to do that in five minutes, right? And then yeah. they're like, you know, whereas in a previous project where it was like, you know, I have 10,000 records here, 20,000 here, I can figure it out myself. But right. then now that there's this huge problem, it's like, okay, this is an easy win-win for me. And then same thing with like the zoning reform I mentioned, right? It's, it's, you know, how do we collect this totally new data that we never had before? In that case, you're like, wow, I can do all this new research that no other researcher can do because I have data science capacity, right? So it's like, you know, we don't, we're not pushing in every area and 80% of the research projects are still doing the same things that they're doing. But in areas where there's this real opportunity to innovate and do new things, it seems like an obvious win-win. And even then you're right, it's, there's still some, let's say, extreme skepticism as we're trained to have in the research field, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. getting over that's also hard and I don't want to minimize that. Right, right. So maybe this is a good segue to the data privacy security issues that Claire is specializing in. Um, because you already mentioned these huge data sets, they may have specific individualized observations and I don't think urban, we haven't really ignored those security issues, but they definitely change and are maybe even more important when we go from like the ACS or an aggregate data set to like your credit record. <laughs> so, um, I don't know, Claire, do you want to, I, I don't even know what the question is, to be honest, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe give like a, a baseline for people to, to start a framework for people to start thinking about when it comes to research, what does data privacy mean? Yeah, so data privacy is a huge umbrella and the specific area that I specialize in is more on the data releasing side of data privacy. So the example I usually give people is healthcare data because everybody kind of, well, especially now they're, that's on their mind. So healthcare data is very useful a data set to find early correlations on diseases, cancer, HIV, and now with COVID right now, it would be really useful to figure out uh, 
maybe certain kind of symptoms that are more common or people who are more targeted or affected. However, at individual level, there's a lot of very personal information there in those healthcare data sets. And researchers who use them shouldn't know who in the data set has COVID or has cancer, HIV, and so on, but they still need to have access to it. So kind of research I try to do is to make a kind of what we call a synthetic or like pseudo record, so fake kind of version of the data set that is statistically representative of the original, but still useful for those medical researchers to use. And another caveat of, that I forgot to mention is that our taxpayer money goes towards collecting that data too, so people should have access to it at some level. And so here at Urban, uh, we have a lot of like Grant was talking about very large data sets. And nowadays it's becoming much harder to protect people because we have these like computers in our pockets. So I talked a little bit about that in my blog where for the decennial 2010 US census came out, the methods they use that have existed for many years basically roughly worked. But nowadays it's a lot harder to just remove those PIIs or personally identifiable information or then one of the techniques that Decennial used was called swapping. So they would randomly swap people's attributes with somebody else in another state. That's how they were protecting individuals. But 2010, smartphones were barely a thing. Now, today's smartphones are stronger than our laptops or desktops that we had in 2010. So it's really hard to protect against just like brute force computational power that you can just find, oh, look, we have now social media. Maybe people can be linked by those external data sets and we can find them in decennial in our healthcare data, which happens quite often. And so I guess going into the kind of segue of some of the links I provided, one of the kind of data sets that's really hard to protect against is called spatial data. And so the two links are talking about cell phone metadata because pretty accurate, right? We carry a lot of all of us have smartphones. Uh, and so that information is being collected. And so in the, I think it's the second link, but that one's the older one, which is in December of 2019, showing from New York Times talking about how you could find out where people live and work because just how frequently or like what, what time of day that they would go between places. And one of the things they noticed was somebody worked, I might invert this, but so somebody worked at Amazon, it was obvious. And then there was like one time they went to Google. And then two months later, they switched jobs <laughs> and they started working. <laughs> so, so it's like something like that. But there was an article uh, some couple years back from, I believe it was from Stanford that talked about how they could figure out who had heart conditions because they would go visit a particular doctor. And so that's, that's kind of scary. Right. <laughs> so is this is all this data especially on the on the cell phones are companies able to get these data because we all just click that little agree button on every app that pops up and we don't no one ever reads it uh most of them, yes. Because <laughs> you'll see the thing, like, it's like, oh, are you okay sharing your location data? Right. And a lot of people say, yeah, I totally want Google to know where I'm at. Right. And, and, uh, and actually, one of the most identifying pieces of information is next to your social security number is your cell phone number, actually, because people are very resistant right. to changing that. And so when people ask you, like, oh, would you like to be part of our membership to, like, if you go to Costco, well, I don't know, actually, Costco does this, but I was, like, thinking of, like, grocery store. So, like, when I went in D.C. My video has slowed down. There we go. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> so, like, in D.C., there's a Harris Teeter I went to as a grocery store there. <laughs> there and they asked, like, oh, would you like to become yeah. a membership? And you just need your cell phone number. And so that's how they, they track you. <laughs> Great. 
this is going to be the most terrifying uh, conversation we're going to have, I think. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, so um, there is a, a question um, that was sent over. So the question is about the recent blog posts about reduction in movements based on cell phone data where DC got an A plus and Wyoming got an F. Stoss wants to know what level of aggregation did they use and what kind of apps or sensors were they using to measure all of that? That's a good question. I haven't been able to dig in deeper because that was one of my questions was like, what was their baseline? Mm -hmm. and, and comparing people, was it like several months ago or not? Uh, they did talk about it's from, what was, what was the company? There's a startup company that's actually gathering people. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so yeah. I, that's what I'm very curious about. And I tweeted about it because one of the things that bothered me when they were saying like DC got an A plus and Wyoming got an F was that I thought they ignored the social aspects of mm -hmm. these these different areas because like for me i came i'm from idaho and actually lived in wyoming for a little bit because that's where my mother is right now and unlike when i was in dc i could just like right off the metro there was a harris teeter so a grocery store and i would just go pick up when i needed to and it was pretty frequent until the covid happened then i was like, oh okay i'll just go weekly uh, but in wyoming other more rural states you live so far away that you usually like even without a COVID situation, you wouldn't be going to the store every other day. Right. You'd be going like like once a week or every two weeks. Or when I was growing up, we went to our monthly trip to Costco. Like you got the <laughs> biggest car you could. Sometimes you got a trailer. You would right. drive to Missoula, which was three hours. So for reference, it was three hours drive away. Yeah. Go to Costco right. and you just load in like a thousand dollars worth of stuff. And that was supposed to hold you over until the next time you the go. Next month, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and John, I'll only add that too. There's like, there's the yeah. urban rural issue that Claire mentioned, but then there's also the fact that like, as it, when you're analyzing these data, whether it's from this startup or other companies, you don't actually know usually, you know, like the, lo the location and like the unique user, but you don't usually know which app is the one recording it. And each app records yeah. it in different ways and at different intervals. So right. like, you'll just have all these locations from different apps in someone's phone. Maybe it's just one app, maybe it's 10 apps. You press yes 10 times to every app you download it, right? And you have like, some people are like super users. You have like every minute, you know exactly where they are. And then some people, you know, like once a day or right. once, once a week that, cause they didn't open that app all week, right? So yeah, right, right. Data quality issues there. Right. So can you two maybe talk about a project at Urban where this issue became really acute um, because I because I think about you know as someone who's just done research for a long time like ACS or the CPS the you know a lot of the Census Bureau data haven't really had these particular issues because they the census tries to they try to address the security privacy issues. Graham as you've built out your team um, at Urban and introduced some of these other data sets is there like an example that you can provide to people where some privacy security issue has come in that your more senior researcher may not really think hard about the security and privacy issues. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a ton of examples here, and one of the reasons we brought on Claire was so we could get better at this, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. I can't I can't memorize all of these problems all at once and figure that out. And so part of it is that you know Claire is going to be in the future. You know, we haven't decided when because she just she just recently started a few months ago. <laughs> right to help disseminate these and I don't want to commit her to exactly when that's going to happen but she's interested in doing that soon <laughs> and, right and that's going to help disseminate practices throughout urban you know 
generally, generally speaking, I think right now we're in the phase of trying to make people aware of the issue, mm -hmm. and especially when it's related to de-identification, right? So like the most common use case where, you know, I think this can go wrong and where we're talking with a bunch of government agencies and also internal researchers about is whatever data collection effort you've gone through and you want to de-identify the data and release it publicly or release it to other researchers via an archive, right? It's like, what's the risk of that data being re-identified? In other words, you have all this really personal information that people might not want to have shared with other people. And now like that's just a, a random individual in the file. You don't know who that is, but then you use a few pieces of information like their zip code or, you know, their, especially their phone number, right? And all of a sudden you've re-identified the individual or their birth date or, you know, right. age, location, things like that are really sensitive, right? So, you know, the, the point is, how can we do that better? And I think, you know, Claire and I, and I'll let Claire talk in a second, I've sort of like talked with a bunch of people who are releasing data, both internally and externally. And, you know, one of the, those exa great examples is the decennial census. Uh, we're working directly with the Internal Revenue Service with IRS, right? On how mm -hmm. do we release their data in a way that's useful for researchers, right? Because right now they release a public use file every year. And, you know, over the years, over the last few years, it's public information, it's gotten less and less useful, right? Because they've had to create more and more draconian sort of privacy cuts to that data set. And so, you know, there's this issue around mm -hmm. how do we best uh, protect that data set in a way that works for the research users, but at the same time protects everyone's individual privacy because, you know, we don't want to share that information publicly with anybody. It's my time to jump in, right? <laughs> I'm just like, it's kind of harder to tell. Like, video, video. So like, wave my hand. <laughs> uh, so one of the, the issues that like Graham was alluding to is like what I would call like the top five problems in data privacy is accessibility. So even though the field has existed for decades, uh, there has been not a lot of communication, nor I guess the motivation became more prevalent with computers coming along. So when I say data privacy has existed for a while, it's existed more formally, I guess, like 60s or so, like when first papers were coming out, like more technical, talking about like what we should do with the data, like decennial and things like that. So right now the field is very scattered. Uh, so some people say, oh, it's originally in computer science or some people say statistics, but it, it's beyond just that. So computer science, statistics, economics, social science, and the list goes on and on of, of those who are interested in the field because they all want to access data in some form or have data and they want to share it with others. But the whole accessibility issue is either those who specialize in trying to release this data set and trying to figure out latest techniques or ways to analyze data that's more coarsely aggregated because of privacy issues. So there are techniques to try to like get better estimates. Uh, however, they tend to be very technical. So like the average user or anybody who's interested in trying to either apply it on their data or trying to use the data, it, they, they can't quite decipher it all. And even with that, some people think, okay, well, there has to be some packages because right now we have a lot of great open source languages. Why don't we use that? There are a couple packages existing, but they are either very specialized or not as well known or well used. So even on the computational front, it's a little tricky. Or sometimes the packages assume, like one of the packages I found, they assume you have a GPU <laughs> or access to a computer with a GPU, which is 
not, <laughs> the average person's not going to have one of those, especially the one that they said they used was like three to $5,000 <laughs> just for the, the component. Yeah. That's very unrealistic, uh, even for like a, a government agency, because uh, there's red tape everywhere when you're trying to figure out like, oh, I want to buy this. And your supervisor says, why? <laughs> That's definitely a big, big hurdle. And so something that I'm trying to actively more work on is creating better communication materials about what are the latest techniques and like how do people get access to that or even just trying to decipher some of those technical papers a bit better for the average person. So, Can I frame this too, John, for a second? Do you mind? Yeah, of course. It's like yeah. the, the, the real issue here is that there, as Claire explains pretty well in her blog post, like it's basically the usefulness of the data for us and for others to use it for, you know, to, to help inform policymakers and improve the lives of people, right? And the privacy of it for the folks who don't want to be revealed are sort of directly at odds, right? And so what we're trying to do is ensure that we make the trade-offs in the areas where the data is super needed publicly, right? Where we reveal a little bit more privacy and maybe have the data be more useful. And on the other hand, like where we really actually don't need it, right? We, we can give privacy back to the individuals and make sure it's super secure, right? And so, you know, one of the things I think that, why I think I'm really excited to have Claire and why we added her to the team and why we have so many so much work coming up with, with her is that we, you know, it's, it's a policy discussion and not a computer science discussion. And where this data privacy has been is in the computer science field, right? They're talking about, yeah. here's how you protect privacy, right? Protect privacy like this. And it's a really stringent standard for doing so. And mm -hmm. we sort of give up all the usefulness. And now we need to actually have a conversation with both people in the room. Like, I want to protect the privacy. Great. Here's the usefulness of the data. Great. How do we have that conversation when there like, are terms like epsilon and no one really understands the mathematical definition of differential privacy? And like, what does that mean when you increase one versus the other, right? For my data set, yeah. where I see like a lot of these sort of academic wonky debates have popped up over the last year with folks from like IPUMS or, you know, the census or others who are sort of trying to say, yeah. you know, we're doing it the right way. No, you're doing it the wrong way. We're doing it the right way. You should do it this way sort of thing. And I think, you know, it, we want to have a much more productive discussion than that, I think, because it's really a valuable one to have. It's like right. a food fight right now. <laughs> to put it nicely, I guess. So, is that, so, so like the easy answer, well, not the easy answer, but the easy like next stage is, oh, let's get everybody in a room and talk about it and have these conversations. But that's like the answer for everything is like, let's bring both parties together and have a conversation. So looking beyond just having these conversations, what's the next step in this process of really getting these to the computer science and the research sides together as not just they need to talk it out. Let me rephrase this question. If you two were in charge of all federal data and privacy in the United States, I guess my question is like, what is your ideal policy framework that you would put into place? Oh my gosh, that is a very good question. <laughs> that gives you a lot of power. Oh my god, yes. Start where you're starting with now and maybe we'll work up to that big answer. Yeah, I know, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> so I, I actually, one of the first things I was doing while I was in DC, just starting the job was to, to start all those conversations with people and seeing like yeah. what, talking both to the computer scientists, uh, census, IRS, uh, housing department, just trying to get a feel for like, what are their data needs? Uh, why are they, they're trying to release to other people, but then also 
talking with the data users. So internally in urban and externally as well, what are the needs? And so because of that, uh, that's why I got inspired to do this data communication kind of initiative. So mm -hmm. currently in the process of submitting a proposal to, to make a series of both written and computational communication materials that were targeted based on these kind of meetings and trying to bring people together and solicit feedback from them uh, frequently. Because even though we gather great information from all these meetings, figuring out like what people want or what do they want to release is not always perfect because sometimes you make these poor assumptions about what the data users want or what does census actually want to release or IRS or other other uh, mm -hmm. government agencies. And so just kind of have that open dialogue. Now, hopefully <laughs> this better communication among everybody will, will help release more data because there are frankly a lot of great and valuable data sets that aren't being released out that could help inform policymakers. And so I guess the next step after that is that once we have this, getting more researchers to analyze that data and then seeing how we can take that data to, or these analyses and bring it up to the policymakers to make better decisions. And I guess trying to figure out like the big, big, big picture, right? You said like, if we had control of everything, so <laughs> trying to get all the different government agencies to accept these better practices, uh, it's actually harder than people. Like, I don't know uh, how many people have worked with government <laughs> or worked in government. It, it can be very challenging at times to adopt new practices. Yeah. And so like if I had like that, I don't know, that stamp or... Uh, <laughs> be magic like you're wand, just really? yeah magic wand be like you guys all accept this now yeah, right <laughs> right <laughs> and to your point to your point about like what would be the like okay we can just get people together all day but like that's expensive yeah. time hard like i think what we want to do right like here's the state of the field now right there's probably 10 to 15 people probably claire can name every single one of them off the top of her head who have enough knowledge and expertise in this field to be able to bridge that gap and help those conversations happen, right? And like, that's one of the reasons we hired her. And like, this was a, it was a long hiring process. And I think, you know, a staff who just asked a question, I think helped us with that in referring us to Claire also. So thank you, Steph. <laughs> I think, you know, what, uh, you know, what I think is, you know, such a important thing is to recognize that that's such a small field and to make the data Look, we're, we're not only hearing from federal policymakers or from researchers here at Urban. We've been talking to local cities who are like, we want to, you know, keep our city accountable by releasing local data, but we're worried about releasing it because we don't want to, like, you know, we're a city who had made an equity promise. We want to show that we're making progress toward hiring more, you know, people of color, right? But releasing that data is sensitive, right? So how do you keep them accountable? Right. And so they're worried about it. So there's like a ton, a ton more people in this world than like the 10 or 15 people that are like Claire to like be able to broker these conversations. So I think our first goal is how do we like get that second group, the information they need to quickly understand the problems and trade-offs and be able to make those conversations happen much more broadly. Or, you know, how do we get the government analyst or the head of the, you know, their new chief data officers in every government agency right now, right? And their chief yeah. data officers popping up at the city level. How do we at least get them like to understand the trade-offs so how do we, you know, Claire's saying, like, how do we produce communications materials? We're partnering with folks from, like, the Future of Privacy, you know, Foundation and others who are, like, real, real experts in this field and talk to policymakers all the time. How do we get them educated on how to talk about these trade-offs, right? And so I think, you know, producing these materials, producing some of these programming packages and, like, you know, open source, like our Python, 
Um, so, you know, you can imagine like a playbook or a quick checklist or things like that that would help us to sort of get that next level involved. We're not going to get everyone involved, but hopefully expand that field beyond just the few people that Claire knows. Right. Is it, um, do you think it's more important or maybe it's just equally important that this comes from the analyst level up or from the head of an agency down. I mean, it's easy, it, in some ways easy to say from the top down because, you know, an agency head says, we're gonna be doing this and then it's, you know, that's the rule now. Um, but I wonder if that's actually not, that's not how the world is. And so I wonder if like, you've already talked about all the different people that you're working with. When you look at the landscape of people out there doing this sort of work that it's important for, do you, think about the analyst level first or do you think about the CDO or the agency head like or is it just everybody in the in the ladder yeah and I, I'll let you answer Claire I only have the super high level answer which is the high level people are like I'm super worried about privacy I want to make this trade-off in a responsible way I want to keep this data out there how do I do it right and the analyst is like man, this is way over my pay grade. I'm not a privacy researcher, right? Uh, yeah. so, like, this is what we are, and we want to like help the analysts have the tools and help the chief data officer have like the one or two page, like here's what you need to do, and here's how you say yes, and here's how you empower your analysts sort of thing. But right. I mean, as you know, like different audiences, different products, yeah. right? right? So, but like, I think they both have their own specific problem. Claire's talked to more of them though, I'll let her. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say it's definitely throughout that, that yeah. ladder, because I'm just going to give an example. I was working at the Census Bureau early on when they were thinking about switching over to differential privacy. And so it did come from higher up saying, well, like, well, this is what we're going to do. And when I was working in the Center for Survey Research and Methodology, they, a lot of people were just were like, I don't, what is, what is Epsilon? I have no idea. They were all very confused and they brought in these big name researchers to give these talks. And I just remember my supervisor who, like we kept staring at each other during this one talk that was supposed to help educate the group on, on differential privacy. And they were all confused. He had this look of WTF <laughs> on his face. And so then afterwards he looks at me, he's like, he had a private chat with me. He's like, Claire, you saw my face, right? <laughs> I said, yes. Uh, he's like, you, do you think I understood what was going on? I'm like, no, I don't think so. He's like, okay, you need to do better because I'm going to make you give a talk on this. <laughs> so anyways, this is like my, my story about how it, we do need to like think about everything in between or else like you're not, if you don't have everybody else who are, I guess, like the ground floor, like working on the data, analyzing it, on board, then it's going to be much harder to like move right. the whole organization, right? Right, right. So. <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. Um, so we have a, a question from Grisia Grisha. Thank you. Hi. Thanks so much for doing this. My yep. question um, relating to governments, specifically like local city governments, do you think they would be more likely to adopt these kinds of like best practices or like uh, Graham, I think you mentioned like a playbook kind of thing if more of the big players started adopting them. So for example, if like you somehow convince like the US Census or the IRS or like big um, like city of New York or city of LA to adopt them and then um, other people would, you know, kind of feel the pressure like be more willing to try it out since it's kind of been standardized because of these big players adopting them. 
That's such a good question. <laughs> I, lo I love that question. So yes, I definitely think you're right. I think right now the, tr the fact of the matter is everyone's looking at census. Right, so like they are. for better or worse, that's the, our first big picture example of what's gonna happen. And I think people are sort of holding their breath and waiting, you know, I, Claire and I and Rob Santos, who's our chief methodologist at Urban, have tons of opinions about, you know, what census has done well, and then let me say diplomatically what they could have done better um, about this differentially private release. And I, I think people are waiting to see like, well, what are those lessons learned and how, are, how, how, would I, how might I apply that as a local government? I, I also think, you know, frankly, when we've been talking to local governments, it's not just like your LA or New York, you know, folks like Austin or Kansas City are also interested in this stuff from my conversations with them. And, you know, I think they are really interested in it. It's like, give me a tool, a specific tool that I can apply level of interest. So like, whereas, you know, your folks at the IRS or HUD or census might be much more willing to say like, well, my data is super special. Maybe we have a little bit of a budget to try and like work through these issues of privacy and security versus usefulness. It's, uh, you know, Kansas City or someone might be like, as you said, the next level after that once you've seen a few models and you're like, oh, well, this one is the right one for me because they use this type of data sort of thing. So I definitely agree with you that it's going to like sort of cascade or waterfall down. But census right now is at the top of that waterfall metaphorically. And we're all sort of just waiting to see what happens. I think. <laughs> Claire, I don't know if you know how to add to that. Uh the only thing I, I'm going to add to that is that I realize we haven't talked about the fact that a lot of uh, places in, from federal all the way down to a local government level actually don't know about privacy issues either. There are some mm. who, who think that I just remove the personally identifiable information and that's sufficient. But again, we have so much extra data out there, social media, and just, <laughs> or in this, what I call innocent pieces of information that people don't think about can be used against them because it has enough information to link them to a data set. And if people want some references, there's like, I think the classic example, this is from 2008, is the Netflix prize. Right. Where, yeah, it was, Netflix yeah. released some of their data sets. For those who don't know, they were going to give $1 million for researchers to improve the recommendation system uh, by, I think it was like 10% was the threshold. And so one research group, instead of trying to improve the recommendation system, tried to see if they could identify the people in the data set. And they were because of, I always say this wrong, the IMDB. Mm -hmm database yeah so they yep. were just able to use that and find people uh, and this is back again in 2008 so imagine like what we can do yeah. now with much more powerful computers and there's more information because like social media was kind of merging that was like when myspace was still a thing <laughs> so, i imagine now what, what we can do and and netflix prize data set some people are like i don't care if people know what i like yeah. Claire, connect the dots on like why social media is like a date is like a good source of like linking data. Is that valuable? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Claire, can you just describe that? Like, why is social media like a problem when you're talking about re-identifying? Oh yeah. So to expand a bit, uh, Facebook is a really good one because a lot of people will put down like, oh, I I was alumni of this. Uh, university or high school, this is the year I graduated, a lot of people have their date of birth actually on, on Facebook. Right. And so you can just link those to, to other data sets that have maybe they don't have the year of your date of birth, but they have your month and day because they thought, oh, this is 
it's fine, nobody needs to know, or saying like, uh, this is an education data set and this is us tracking people through time. And so because of your Facebook feed, you said like, oh, I graduated this place, or let's say a workforce data set. Some people put down on their Again, I'm picking on Facebook because it's a really easy one <laughs> is that you have like, oh, this is the first place I worked. I work now at this other location or there was a case of a woman from Harvard who was able to link people posting about if they had an accident or something like that. Like, oh, so, so and so went to the hospital and you can link them to yeah. the healthcare data set. Yeah, and then depending on the social media platform, people don't realize you just take a picture of like your pet in your home, which is a very popular social media activity, as we all know. Right. How else do you go on social media anyway? And then, right. uh, well, I guess to hear your relative rant about politics. But other than that, you know, you, so you put, you, so like you just take a picture and like a lot of our phones are geo-enabled by default in our images, right? And in the image metadata of most of our images is a geolocation, right? So now I yeah. know the block or zip code in which you live, which is super valuable for linking you across data sets. Cause you may be, your name night may not be unique across the United States, but it's probably pretty unique in your zip code. Right. right. In your block. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm poking around my office. I'm in the middle of a book and I can't find it right now. It's on algorithms and like in the inter introductory chapter is about uh, Boston releasing some health and health data and saying, Oh, it's secure. Yes. And the reporter was like, well, let's see. And I think it was like, I think whoever released it might have been the governor or the mayor said so this is completely secure and the reporter was able to track you know his specific address and location okay. from the health records so um yeah. so it was actually Latanya Sweeney uh okay. she's now of CS uh, a full professor at Harvard so she did this as her graduate student project because <laughs> she was at MIT she was at MIT at the time and so yeah the governor of Massachusetts is like we're going to release all this data it's very and, and it is useful it was like the federal or, or excuse me not federal the statewide data employee data set and he was like I really we removed all the personally identifiable yeah. information it's perfectly fine and she record linked it to voter data and right. and sent him an, an envelope of all his personal healthcare records like <laughs> <laughs> directly to his office i was like wow that is yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's that's nicely done yeah <laughs> um so there are a few i have a few questions in the in the chat box so um there's one uh, i think that's that's to everyone's i guess i'll just read it quickly um, do either of you have recommendations for a secure cloud storage use if there's PII in a data set? Um, Elizabeth wrote in, she has a small organization, they don't have an internal service, so they rely on cloud storage. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that, either of you. So we do actually, so I, you know, I built up a lot of our cloud infrastructure along with our DevOps team here at Urban. So we do have, you know, IT department over for 30 people. So we're, you know, in a privileged position. I definitely recognize that. You know, uh, there's nothing inherently insecure about the cloud, but you do have to be really careful about how you architect the system. So we do have protocols around, you know, checks and security logs and things like that, that you sort of need to have in place, just like you would in your on-premise environment. And then you need to understand how data are being transferred between your organization and the cloud, right? Because a lot of these organizations that have virtual private clouds, you know, that are connected directly to their organization's network, they have what are called like, you know, in AWS speak, it's called direct connect, right? You have a direct line that goes from you where no other internet traffic is going over that line. And if you are transferring data that's not over that line, you need to ensure that it's encrypted in transit and encrypted at rest. And most of the modern tools will do that. But like what you really want to ensure is that you have a system that's built and you may need to like, we actually 
no, it's not like a thing that we like to do, but we have peer friend organizations that we're nice with and work with where, you know, me and, and our DevOps team will like just consult with them for a few hours to say like, yeah, no, that's not the way you should set it up. You should set it up this way just to be nice. It's not like urban's business model or anything. We just want to see people succeed, but there are, you know, you do want to at minimum make sure you have encryption at rest, encryption in transit. And if there's any data that's governed by a federal law, such as HIPAA or FERPA or any of these, you know, health education or other privacy laws, you need to ensure that you're storing it in a system that is built for that and that any data that's transferred to and from that system is also following those regulations. The good news is a lot of the cloud providers do have that by default. You can access a list for any cloud provider, you can just like Google AWS HIPAA certified services, right? Or, or Azure HIPAA FERPA certified services. And they'll give you a full list of everything that's certified and available to use. Mm -hmm. So that's a really a benefit is like sort of out of the box and, and it's better than on-premise because you can sort of just build it out. But you know, generally speaking, you do want to have somebody, you know, we have five certified solutions architects on staff. You probably want to have at least one person who really knows the cloud really well and knows how you're working with data at your organization to at least double check that that system is secure, whether you get a consultant for a few hours or some other method. Right. Great. I um, hope that was helpful. Um, so a couple other questions. Um, this one from Daniel, I really like, I, I like this question. So the question is, do you expect the public's tolerance for privacy? Uh, to change given the recent COVID-19 pandemic. So, um, you know, after 9-11, we had uh, the Patriot Act, which people seemed at the time, just yeah, obviously in the immediate aftermath, we seemed willing to give up some of our privacy for security. And that has kind of waned depending on who's trying to sell the message. Um, but, but it's a good question about whether you think people's tolerance for privacy is going to change given the current pandemic. As an example, this isn't in the question, but as an example that I saw, like DC is publishing the gender and age of everyone who's identified to be infected with, with COVID. So I just wonder whether you think things will change in one direction or another once we're through this, this moment in time. Claire, do you want to take it first? Yeah, I'll try to take a stab at it. Uh, it's not a good <laughs> response to it. I think uh, the example I think of more prominently is that the when Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal came out, people were very upset about it, right? And then they were trying to do some changes, but obviously things didn't change a whole lot other than now that people can reference it saying this is an issue. Uh, I can see both ways going. I can see people relaxing it up because uh, with the, for instance, that metadata, that is really useful for figuring out not just like a COVID pandemic, but also other emergency responses, such as if we get hit, hit by hurricanes a lot too, trying to figure out like, where can we identify people? Where are the, the choke points in our road systems to get people out and things like that. But then I can also see the other way of like, what if all these, uh, this data being released, you said that the gender and age and people who've been infected, it could be very targeted for like insurance companies saying like, hey, you had COVID before. And so your lungs right. are now maybe like more compromised, your respiratory system. So we're going to raise your rates now. Right. Uh, should that be fair? No, but that's what insurance companies will do. There have been cases where if they know that you're smoking, uh, it isn't your health insurance go up, your car insurance goes up because they mm. think that you're more likely to, to pass away. So mm. I guess that wasn't a very precise no, answer but, of what I think one way or the other, but yeah. Some of the implications and i'll just add one thing which is like the i was in uh, this like sort of closed door session where there's this i can't name the funder or the organization where they're doing like market research with like average everyday americans on like data usage and sort of like data and data privacy and a, a concept was how can we better like 
market integrated data systems, right? Like merging your healthcare data with your criminal justice data to like do good in the world, right? Because there's a lot of, in, there's a lot of systems around the country that are trying to like merge different data sets across fields to like help homeless people better access multiple services instead of like each person treating them as like they've never seen them before. Right. So, you know, that is super valuable. And what they sort of like the summary that I took away from that conversation is like people are okay with it if you tell them exactly how it's being used and they're like okay with that use of the data. So I think like to Claire's point, it's like insurance company could go use this and like people's default view is is on average going to be, well, someone's going to do something bad with this data. So it's not going to be good for me. And like, I can't blame them. I don't know if I'm, I probably am on the same page with them on most of those uses, honestly. <laughs> like when you, say, when you tell them like, hey, this is gonna be used so we can you know, better teach the kids in your school how to do X or better support the you know, kids who you know, are having trouble at home or we can help you know, the firefighters better prioritize where to go or we can help your local, right? Like those sort of cases where it's like, there's a clear good and we're using data to do this X, that's like what resonated most with most people, right? Is that they could actually, there was actually something concrete that was good that was going to happen with the data. And I think if we have some protections and ideas around that, it would like, that would, I think, help us in the long run. But I, I am like a little bit sort of on Claire's side. I think like, I am a bit pessimistic. Like if we do relax it, I do think that there will be a lot of those struggles like with the insurance companies. Yeah. yeah. Actually, there was a, I think, um, paper I read that they surveyed a bunch of people about what they thought about privacy. And the general consensus was that people were okay, like Graham said, as long as you told them what they were gonna, what the data was gonna be used for and that you, the, whoever had collected the data did the best they could to protect it. And they were open about the process on which they did. So, cause one of the theoretical questions like, what if it got, got bro- broken in? And people were more okay if it got broken because, like after it was like password protected, encrypted, and like you know, all these other things. They're like, oh, so it, it happens. Like they tried their best, like because it was for a greater good or something like right. that. Right. Right. So. We're almost out of time here, but uh, Sarah has a question um, that uh, I thought was really interesting. So, oh yeah, she unmuted. So Sarah, go ahead. Yeah, that kind of picks up on what Graham was just saying um, a bit, but I was wondering if there's work that folks have done on um, on sort of the equity dynamics of re-identification risk, like are different groups more or less vulnerable to being re-identified? And then like given that, are different groups more likely to see harm or benefit from re-identification? Claire, I don't know of any that have taken an explicit equity focus, but that just could be me not knowing as, as much of the literature. Do you know of any? Not, not specifically other than what we call the small population problem. So it's another, like, when I said, like, top five challenges of data privacy, and one of them is the small population problem, because on one hand, you, you need that kind of finer grain detailed data to, to have more targeted benefits of thinking of, for instance, I'm writing a proposal with somebody in the, our metro center on trying to figure out like, oh, can we get access to employee and employer data to be better about like helping rural communities do startups and like have help their small businesses flourish. However, at that such a fine grain detail of geography and with certain demographic information, then it's going to be very identifying. Uh, for example, I come from Salmon, Idaho. I talk about that in my blog. There's 3,000 people there, and I was the only Asian American high schooler. <laughs> so, so people could definitely find me there. Uh, so, unfortunately, not to my knowledge, there's any papers looking into the equity. That it's a very important issue. 
uh, I like to tell people that there's so many cool and interesting problems that we really need to address and work on, but there are not enough clairs. <laughs> it's a really open place i think like if i'm gonna it's sort of like why we haven't seen it any action is a good is also a good question and i i would i think we should see more research in this field i think part of the reason we haven't and i think maybe census might be the first to do this is as you said claire there's a small population problem and then there's the non-response or are they included in the data problem Right. In some ways, we over-surveil people in criminal justice, but in other data sets, we often have to correct or oversample lower-income people or people of color or Latino people because they aren't responding to the surveys at as high of a rate. And that also just creates the exact same problem that Claire was mentioning in terms of how do you do representative risk. And you know, one of the things we were talking with, uh, we were talking with the city of LA a couple months ago, about a spatial, a spatial equity representation tool. Essentially, it's a tool we're building that you know, helps governments give us point data on where they're like, investing. And we can say, well, these, you're over-investing in higher income white neighborhoods, or you're right. And we use underlying census data to do that analysis. And the city of LA is like, yeah, that's a great tool. And like, we can see why we really need it. On the other hand, like, we have a huge census non-response rate. We have one of the highest in the country, right? So it's like, why do I even trust your equity analysis? Because I'm not, there's so many people that aren't included in the, the data that we trust as like ground truth today that I'm even questioning anything you do with that data, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's also an interesting larger question to consider. Yeah. There was, um, I don't know if I'd call it research, but in um, Kathy O'Neill's book, Weapons of Mass Destruction, she, she has a lot of examples of these. I, would, I don't know if I'd call that, you know, research per se. I mean, she's researched to write the book, but probably not in the sense that, um, we were just talking about. Um, so I, we have, um, I think we have like just a couple more minutes. So I want to uh, let uh, Daniel come back in on this question about, you know, whether people's perspective on data security and privacy will change. So um, he had a follow up question. So Daniel, go ahead. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay, great. Hey, Claire. Hey, hey Graham. Uh, yeah, I, so I wanted to push back a little bit on, on your comment, Claire, uh, because you know, while, while the, the surveys are nice, I, I haven't really seen like um, more sort of legislative or popular pushback. And I was curious on whether you thought the light punishment either of the Equifax hacked or any of sort of repercussions on Facebook because of the Cambridge Analytica scandal sort of reinforced the idea that the public, you know, perhaps doesn't care or doesn't particularly understand sufficiently about uh, privacy to do something about it. Do you have either examples of like companies being correctly punished or maybe sort of organizations that are really promoting sort of legislative change? So that's a good question. Uh, this is a little bit outside of my, my expertise. Uh, it's more like I'm aware of these things because they are tendentially uh, related to my research. Uh, so in terms of like companies being directly punished, I can't think of any right now on the top of my head, but I know that given things like Facebook, uh, what happened there, there were company, other companies who responded to that in their own practices because they were afraid that either uh, thinking that the users wouldn't trust them anymore and not use their products or the fact that they're like, Maybe they have a, I shouldn't say it like that, but like some of them do care and try to be like a good acting citizen entity or something like that. So uh, like for instance, like right after the, the Analytica sandal happened, that was actually 
that incident happened two days before I defended my thesis. So that was very interesting and timely. And so when I went out on the job market, there was actually a lot more positions uh, up for a data privacy specialist. And I think it was in response to kind of that is going like, hey, we don't want this to happen at our company. Uh, we don't want to be under the scrutiny of Congress. We need to, res to respond and be better better citizens. And so on to the, the policy side. So if you're interested in that area, you should look at the future privacy forums. They are a, a nonprofit who very specifically try to talk to congressmen and women on trying to enact better laws. So like they were following a lot with the Washington state uh, when they were enacting one of their legislation. Unfortunately, that fell through. So they're going to be pushing again to try to to get better privacy. Like, like, I'm trying not to be it up with the time, but like, there's other privacy issues such as when you go on to shop and people are like, oh, you want to be part of our newsletter? That's actually a privacy risk uh, because they are kind of indirectly forcing you to be part of their, their server. So, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so. Wow. Um, and I will cool. say like, yeah. just really quick comment, John, that yeah. GDPR has actually forced a lot of innovation in this area. I, I hate to say that because people are really anti-GDPR most of the time, but I, I think it has. And the companies are basically trying to do this. You know, they're, they're essentially taking these systems now, like Social Science One is an area where Facebook had put out a bunch of public data on Facebook shares. It took them two years to build a private system that researchers could access. And their lawyers, if you look at their public blog on that their lawyers were almost not releasing the data because they're so worried about gdpr fines and penalties so you know they're, they're really i think there really has been a shift as claire said in some of these private companies like linkedin and others of really better protecting people's data yeah we started this hour by saying what are we going to talk about i don't know we'll just kind of <laughs> wing it and figure it out and we just like hit the hour mark and there's more that we could talk about I'm sure and I'm sorry to the folks who sent in questions and we didn't get to them um, I'm sure everybody else has a everybody has another zoom call they have to get to so um, I'll just say thanks to everyone for coming in uh, tuning in today and uh, special thanks to Graham and Claire for chatting this was um, really cool um, I put the link to the rest of this week's lineup uh, tomorrow two more urban colleagues of mine Rob Santos who's on this call I see hi Rob um, and Diana Elliott will be talking about uh, their project from last year on 2020 census and what COVID will mean for the counts that are going on right now. And, uh, and then, you know, more great folks coming up the rest of the week. So uh, thanks everyone for tuning in, coming on. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, uh, keep in touch. Let me know who else you'd like to uh, hear from on this, uh, on these chats. So thanks everybody. Have a good one. Stay safe, stay healthy. Take care. Bye. Thanks everyone for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you found it interesting. Um, I am going to post some more of those discussions uh, in the coming weeks uh, that we had on the digital discussion series. If you're interested in hearing more of them or even seeing more of them, uh, you can head over to uh, the Urban Events page where we have posted recordings of all, all nearly all of those talks uh, on that page. So you can go watch them uh, over there uh, at the Urban Events page that'll link you over to uh, the Urban YouTube channel. So I hope everyone is well and safe and healthy. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz podcast. Thanks so much for listening.